0: And then cue the Baudrillard mix.
1: The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity.
0: Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is... how can I to the whole state of things?
1: In view of violence without object. This is the typical violence of
0: Violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have
1: at here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our discussion, we do want to mention We've got that sweet Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there. But if not, maybe be kind and leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Today, Taylor and I will be having a look at Julia Kristeva's Revolution in Poetic Language, which I believe you had said was her dissertation, if I'm not mistaken.
0: The primary... I don't know what her secondary is. You know, the French, they have, you have to write two because why make anything easy? I swear I saw a mention of her secondary. I just don't know if it's been translated. Anyway, this is actually a third, if you will, the first third of her like 650 page dissertation. The other two thirds go into an analysis of May and uh, Lotremont, these 19th century poets i think maya is much more at least in english well known and those 400 pages i don't think will ever be translated because it's like very studious textual analysis yeah. which you might want to call sim analysis that's one of the terms she comes up with and maya is already really difficult to translate and so like i was looking at the french the other day there are still other theoretical uh portions in those other 400 pages but the meat of the um, the theoretical scaffolding if you will is published in this translation this first third it's got some meat on the bones right I mean she does go through philosophy linguistics psychoanalysis you know we see some some friendly names in there like Freud and Lacan even Derrida shows up to be critiqued later on in the in the book but she's also got you know
1: Hegel Husserl, Husserl
0: yeah y- she mentions Yemsworth. Heidegger she she works through a little bit of Heidegger to kind of be like why are we still talking about this motherfucker I agree with you Kristeva. why why are we like one of the things she kind of brings up is this post Heideggerian penchant for for doing for doing theory in the manner of literature which she's like you know she's like no nah, that's not it's not quite what we should be doing i don't know if, if it would coincide exactly with what we might think of this theory fiction today but i think it's it's close i know that later in some of her works she will bring in a little bit of that poetic flair like in um in her book on um abjection is it called the powers of horror she'll have some some of the, some of that flair in any case She's a pretty serious thinker. I'll give a little bit of a a bio before we jump in. I mean, she was born in Bulgaria in 1941. So she immigrated to France in 1966, I suppose, at the age of 24, 25. Published a few books in 68. One of the first is is called Semiotique, which is where she kind of starts developing her notion of the semiotic and of semiotics intertwined but not the same right semiotics would be this kind of uh modelization of the sciences through their various typologies linguistically semantically syntactically intertextually as she might say and then the semiotic which we'll talk about later as opposed to the symbolic is its own register based you know psychoanalytically and sort of the, the intersection of the of the drives and, and the socio-symbolic. But in any case, yeah, so she published a semiotic gay, which has some, some really good material for informing what she publishes in Revolution. She also has a cool book called The. Uh, she has a book on the novel and its development from like the 15th century on. She uses, she helps bring Mikhail Bakhtin's theories about, um, the novel, uh, dialogism, the chronotope, all, all of these interesting kind of theories that would have been known to the Soviet bloc. She helps bring that over into um, French theory, which is, I think is great because I think Bakhtin is, is pretty amazing. So in 74, this is published and it's translated 10 years later in 84. But we can think of... Not, not just in the title itself, but in some of the arguments, we can see that it's only two years after immigrating to France that we have May 68. And so I do think this text is informed by a kind of post May 68 milieu. It's published the same year as Leotard's Libinal Economy. It's kind of in that milieu of uh, of books that we've discussed, Oedipus as well as um, symbolic exchange and death, right? So it's, it's kind of lodged in there. And, um, I guess a few other notes, she was a part of a a pretty established and pretty famous group called Telkel, a journal group. They also published books, had authors, critics were publishing a lot of like the structuralist post-structuralist theory at the time, also engaged in communist politics there's a whole history of Telkel that's fascinating. And one of her, um, on her dissertation board at her defense, which was a pretty public thing. Apparently, you know, when you're fairly famous, she would have been already semi-famous at the time of the publication. Newspapers and Lamond is talking about her defense of her, her work in 74. So it wasn't, As tumultuous as uh like say Deliz's defense in '68, where there's still kind of rioting going on as he's doing the defense. There's still some weird shit going on in the university when he's they're still in the uh, upheaval of things. But Roland Bart was on on her defense committee. And even though he didn't pose a question, he he was always during the defense and after and before was always kind of saying things like when we thought we had found a comfortable position to analyze literature or texts or do theory you know kristeva comes in and sort of uproots our our assumptions you know that was kind of interesting to see um his overt praise for her for her theoretical work we mentioned freud and lacan and psychoanalysis forming a, a large portion of what she's trying to introduce to linguistics philosophy of language etc she becomes a practicing analyst five years later because i think for her the sim analysis the analysis of text as she sees it is one of the modalities in which it is properly carried out is in analytic discourse in what the analyst is doing with the patient
1: in a lot of ways she kind of is anticipatory of the Ljubljana school to some degree, but with perhaps a little more openness to like anti-edipus or the work of Deleuze and Guattari, it seems. Right.
0: In the prolegomenon, the preface to this book, she mentions the Uh She mentions Deleuze and Guattari. It's an ambiguous reference because she, on the one hand, the way, way one could read it is is that their references to modern to modern literature as wow, a story right, right. of the i'm not sure if she calls it schizophrenic flows or something like this one could read it as though they they make it easy on themselves but i i read it more as she's acknowledging the fact that de and Guattari, like herself locate in modern literature a Two things. One, the text, we could read Revolution in Poetic Language as this call for understanding the way in which linguistic shifts, symbolic shifts, and renewals, and and creations go hand in hand with revolutionary, politically, political revolutions. Not necessarily that there's a causal effect, but that they are interdependent. One could read Revolution in Poetic Language as on the directly political level, But I think there's also this sense in which this move from what one might call like a high modern literature, right, in the 18th century to what she's locating in the 19th century with Meyer May and Lotre Amon and also Artaud and some other, I mean, she mentions Joyce uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, she's seeing these shifts in what's being done in their work as an indication of a revolution in literally in the poetic language, right? So on that level, she's seeing this shift in the genre or in the possibilities of what the poetic function of language can do when it's no longer sort of subsumed under the dominant ideology or complicit with it or, you know what I'm saying, when it's no longer sort of in in a kind of fetishized localized domain of what we might call literature with a capital L or with scare quotes. So I think that she's, she's saying like Deleuze and Guattari have a right to focus on these modern texts, which also, in, you know, she mentions Kafka. I think she uses Kafka as one of her epigrams. So like, for example, their their turn to Kafka, for example, would be, I think she's kind of saying it's, it makes sense that they, uh, like me you know julia i'm speaking in her stead like they turn to uh these works of these literary works these poetic works to elaborate their theory of you know schizophrenia as this creative semiotic process and so she's kind of almost seeing some uh convergence there in their object that's how i read it when i once i reread it because i wasn't sure But, you know, it doesn't seem like necessarily she refers to them very, very often. I know that she refers to design machines in a footnote, but again, it's very ambiguous. So Mm -hmm. if she does herald the Lubulana school, because she will turn to Hegel very, very deeply in, in the second part of the text specifically and in the third in rejection and heterogeneity, she'll kind of play off Hegel and Freud. And so one can see, obviously, like that's. Bread and butter for um, Zizek, Zupanchich, et alia. Yeah, I mean, the way that she kind of discusses the signifier, the
1: scission of the signifier, very Lacanian, but with a little bit extra, with some differences.
0: And she's obviously playing with Lacanian terminology, but she has some critiques of Lacan that are not as... Again, I don't know if... I don't even want to call it ambiguity of her text, but her polemics aren't always most direct. She diffuses the, except for like the Derrida section, which is a very focused and very like straightforward. The Lacanian disagreements are diffused through the theoretical register of what she's doing. So I'll come back to to some of that, um, which I find extremely fascinating but um we can maybe either just kind of dive in or start talking about some of the the terminology that she's already kind of mentioned a little bit about what perhaps she might mean for example by the semiotic that was one of the things that i found interesting and i think it maybe sheds light on why she begins her prolegomena with the now this one is a, is a fairly direct polemic it's not to anyone by name but she says our philosophies of language embodiments of the idea are nothing more than the thoughts of archivists archaeologists and necrophiliacs which reminds me a little bit of something you know Nietzsche says about scientists and how they have to dissect the thing they have to kill it and then break it apart to try to understand it rather than practicing a kind of vivisection of something that's alive but yeah she she thinks that they by codifying their object of study for example, language. Or, you know, the dialectic between the semiotic and the symbolic, as she might start to unravel it. They think first you got to codify it, you got to structuralize it, right? So, this is kind of an attack at structuralism to a certain degree. You got to think of language as a structure, which is kind of a dead thing. So, you got to codify it. And then, if you can codify it, then you have mastery of it, then you possess it, which is also kind of a, if you will, a, a phallocratic type of critique, too. Right. Yeah. It's you you have to manhandle it, mansplain it in order to have power over it, in order to do your science. So very quickly, the right, like her point will be to interject or to, to put back in what linguistics has left out, which for her is the subject. You know, at best, linguistics structural linguistics or the or those that she's critiquing you know when it has put in the subject it's either put in the the subject and obviously in the grammatical sense it's not going to leave that out but that's not the kind of living dynamic subject she's thinking about specifically in the psychoanalytic sense right that Freud and Lacan are working with it's really even at best with someone like Husserl who she's trying to revamp and remain faithful to on one hand even then, it's reduced to a kind of transcendental ego. And so, it's even if that has theoretical implications that are important for understanding how meaning works when it's already constituted. And so, how signifiers and signification can flow between me as, as my self identical self, Taylor, you know, or even the subject of enunciation in this transcendental ego sense, talking to you, Coop, as though we are these atomistic subjectivities even if that helps to make sense on the level of constituted language mm-hmm. it doesn't get to the way either in which we as subjects are always in this perpetual you know deleuze might say larval sense right we're always subtended by these these forces and these singularities these becomings so we're in process we're on trial in her language but on the other hand it also hides the processual way in which meaning is Created in the interaction of the semiotic and the symbolic. Obviously, to be very quick, what I would say just as working definitions for now, although we can tweak this later, for her, the semiotic is um sort of the effective material dimension of language that contributes to meaning or the process of meaning of signification, but does not signify like signs. And she'll find this in the work of the drives. She even will kind of critique Lacan, although I think her critique is maybe a little too strong for dulling the significance of the drives in Freud's theory for the sake of something like desire. And so we can imagine if she elaborated a a critique of of Deleuze and Guattari, or even just Guattari himself, she might say the same thing, that you know in Anti-Oedipus, the drives are not they tend to fall out of the theory for this elaboration of desire, which is obviously not Hegelian desire or even Lacanian desire, right? So that would be a a whole another thing. But, right, so for her, she's trying to think of the semiotic as the way in which the drives not only inform the symbolic, which would be probably closer to what she's bringing up that linguists study. The symbolic would be socio-historical science system of meaning, constitutive of a group of speakers. So that might be closer to what we might think of as language as a system or language as a structure, the symbolic would kind of fall into that. So linguists and philosophies and language might have truck, or they might have some merit on the symbolic level, but they, they tend to forget the semiotic level, which is this, you know, the way in which the drives not only inform the symbolic and signification, but are also sort of in touch with it right because we can think about the way that language also inflects and and deflects the drives and their aims it's not just pure unconscious organicity if you will right i think that would be that would be to reestablish a simple nature culture divide that i think that the symbolic and the and the semiotic complicates if that makes sense right so so she's wanting to to reintroduce the drives and therefore the subject in process because that would that would mean a dynamic subject and not a transcendental ego to reintroject that into the study of language which is what i think she means by um on the one hand by By sim analysis or what she may mean by semiotics, but you know, for her semiotics is a formalization or production of models of formal systems. And so semiotics could take itself as an object, which I think is very kind of interesting about the way in which she be, she takes on analysis and becomes a psychoanalyst because. Obviously psychoanalysis is not just a a deployment of a theory, right? But as a practice, the theory itself is not left untouched or left in a static mode as though it's just cookie cutter. That's kind of how she's thinking too of, of the practice she's trying to theorize through her work. Even if it has to go through the symbolic, that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, it doesn't try to do justice to the negativity as she'll say the affirmative negativity at work in mm-hmm. um in the semiotic so you can already see that, that that so much of that has a hegelian ring and undertone to it but um yeah. in a way that's not necessarily just to be dismissed out of hand it goes back to what you're saying about the the Ljubljana type of correspondences and part of that too you can think is it's also just kind of a biographical coincidence right her coming from the east block if you will right so even like her native bulgaria being more regionally sort of uh situated in that in that area geographically
1: okay so the quote says signification exists precisely because there's no subject in signification I guess th- what's interesting about that would be the same. You could say the same about science, right? Like science mitigates, science is working to eliminate the subject in science because it wants to be fully objective in its judgments and statements about the yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, it's that's... kind of counterintuitive to think about there not being a subject in significant in signification to maybe an extent unless one is thinking about maybe that's where God, what's the quote about doesn't Christ or someone have, it's not, I am the way I am the light, but isn't there something, the word like something about the word of God or the word I am the word or.
0: Well, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, maybe that, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yahweh says I am that I am in, uh, is it because, yeah,
1: I guess that would or kind was... of make sense because, like I guess that would be a sort of transcendental ego, but of like of God that would sort of guarantee God would be the subject in signification that would I guess provide the the structure, right? The outside, yeah, that she talks about, right? That definitely comes into play. this this notion that an outside has to be posited. An other has to be encountered or imagined at the very least for language or signification to be, that's sort of maybe if you're thinking about it as an axiomatic in an axiomatic way, right? The problem only arise. Well, would the problem only arise whenever you encounter another, you know what I'm saying? Like you have to communicate with another. That's where a problem occurs that generates the necessity of, signification of generating meaning.
0: Right. I would say two things. One, you're totally right to bring in God as the as the scaffolding and the uh sort of background presupposition of signification. And in fact that actually opens on to a claim in logic of sense. Right. Since not for Deleuze sense which here might one might translate it as meaning. Since does not does not reside in denotation which would you know deictic the, the pointing at the thing yeah uh, like like adam naming the animals or whatever sense does not reside in signification denotation or manifestation each of those three things point to each other in a circle but none of them is identified with sense so signification is guaranteed by god manifestation is guaranteed by the world and denotation is man- uh. is guaranteed by Self, Or it could be denotation is, I'd have to go look and see if it's denotation in God or signification in self. Anyway, these three transcendent entities, Deleuze wants to unground, if you will, right? And sort of point to the singularities, the sub-representative underbelly that makes up language. But here, what I would say in this little passage, signification exists precisely because there is no subject in signification, is I would say there is this, again, this is terminology shit that's weird, but here I think signification is distinct from either what she calls meaning or more strongly what she calls signifiance, because signifiance would be the practice, the sort of open-ended infinite practice, the processual creative aspect, the dynamic aspect of meaning making, whereas signification could be something like you were bringing up with science, not needing a subject or at the limit, eliminating subjects to a certain degree, at least in a conventional sense. So signification would be kind of something like we get when we were talking about, it's been a while, right? But we've talked about the negative differential aspect of the play of signifiers. Obviously, in Saussure's idea of the sign, you've got the signifier and the signified, but at a certain degree, structurally in language, especially with like Lacan, when we start going to that, Baudrillard works on this too, right? When we talk about the differential system of language, signifiers are differentially distinguished from other signifiers, they're playing off of each other. And so, in a certain sense, you don't need a subject at least not in the sense in which she's thinking about a subject in process, right? A subject that's dynamic, that's information. You might need a a thetic position, which she gets from hustle, right? You might need a transcendental ego, an addresser and an addressee in that kind of diagram, that cesarean diagram, right? To ping pong off each other signifiers. But, you know, to a certain extent, right, that's obviously not I think for her, she's trying to undermine that kind of classic model of linguistics that kind of reduces the subject to these atoms of transmitting dictionary terms towards one another, if you will, right? That's not the kind of dynamicity that she's thinking of when she's talking about practice. So that's how I would read this sentence here as signification being this structural mode of language so like if we if we don't understand a word in a dictionary we can we can look up its definition and if there's another that could ping us to another word that we might need and we could go through a dictionary and 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 get significations and a nexus without needing a subject I mean yeah we're the one reading but there's no subject necessarily implied right so it it kind of the, the subject falls out there does that make sense yeah more or less I mean I think that 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 your question is informed by this next, by the next quote, right? It's uh, the speaking subject is no longer considered a phenomenological transcendental ego nor Cartesian ego, right? It's a subject and process on trial. It's a subject that's perpetually called into question in the very practice in which it is implicated. Right. So it's, it's being created and dismantled in, in, in the process which is very close to what we think about when we, you know, we talk about breaks, flows, machinic flux and and shit like that. Right. That for Deleuze and Guattari, the subject is not at the, at the center of the the process. It exists alongside. The periphery. It's a
1: a residue. A residue. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: That's right. Right. And so this next quote you got up here, right. She's talking about, and I try to get to this, she's talking about bringing up, necessarily in phenomenology the transcendental the ego the ego of intentionality of intending towards an object to sort of highlight the positionality of um but also the static nature of these philosophical theories these theories of language in a sense they're already constituted subjects or they're ahistorical subjects that have no connection to whether it be the drives or, um, or signifiance as practice. This will be very important, just to let you know. I mean, this kind of discussion is like for difference and repetition, possibly. Yeah, I mean, but this is meat and potatoes for um, informing the whole arc of her theoretical section. Of this book that uh, okay read because at the very end, uh, in the last few pages of this work, she talks about the ethical implications of you know uh, of the poetic function of what she's looking at semiotically because for her it's to negativize and dismantle narcissistic positions which i think one could say the transcendental ego or the sort of already constituted static subject the subject of consciousness one might say right Mm -hmm. in the classical philosophical sense that is a residue Well, not to use that word since we just used it. (laughs) That is a... Byproduct? It's an implied position. It's something taken for granted. It's a presupposition. Yeah, it's a byproduct. And it implies a kind of narcissism, a kind of static given or universal. Okay, so this is where the predicates, perhaps. am, Am
1: I right there? That would be kind of like the predicate. And just to clarify my logic here... Which could be wrong. Thinking of predicates as like these ready made it would be the these presupposed, maybe even subject categories that we would fall under. Almost to go like maybe like the stern like Stirner spooks mm-hmm. in a sense. These pre made assumed transcendental categories of like man, woman, blah blah blah, at all you know, etcetera, etcetera.
0: You know, it's interesting, right? This gets us back to something that we talked about with um, Stephen Holgate when he's talking about Hegel's use of speculative sentences, where the predicate is not a mere qualifier of the subject, which would already be static, right? In order to give it just a bit more, in order to sort of unfold what was already folded in the subject, it is rather redounds upon the subject and produces a new subject in light of the speculative nature of the predicate if that makes sense so there could be a way of seeing the predicate as a static kind of uh complement to the subject and perhaps that's what you're saying but there's also going back to what a question that kristeva tries to insist upon it's It's not necessarily how does the thetic work if we take it as a presupposition, since she's not. She's questioning the the unity and functionality of the transcendental ego as this stable subject of language. She's asking how is the thetic position itself produced? She's wanting to push the position of the philosophy of language of linguistics to the point of saying... Where is the process that is being that is being concealed and dissimulated and and hidden by the structural assumptions of your science, of your theory? Does that make sense? Right? So I
1: was trying to find there
0: was some mention of predicate that I had highlighted
1: that I'm trying to find to see if it had any legs for that aspect I mean, of the discussion.
0: I mean, I saw some of what you were bringing up with her discussion of freud's little paper on negation you know insofar as the unconscious knows no negation or doesn't function under the regime of negation negating the the predicate is a way of relieving a bit of the pressure of repression in order to allow for the repressed word presentation or idea to enter into consciousness under the guise of negation it it gets a little um passport if you will into consciousness but obviously that doesn't lift the repression i saw you had something on poetry and and a and the a signifying which i think is is pretty important right which is
1: something that baudrillard to i think and the le- the last chapter of um, Symbolic Exchange and Death, I think, focuses entirely on poetry.
0: On poetry, on and anagrams, anagrams, or, or right. paragrams, whereby sort of the symbolic is extinguished in its movement, which is a very interesting, it does kind of dovetail with what Christaise is trying to think about, although for her, for Baudrillard too, but... You know, for her, this question of extinguishing the symbolic, if one could do such a thing, you know, leads to psychosis or madness or something like this, right? Like the symbolic is, and this is where the, perhaps the analogy of a revolution of poetic language versus a revolution in, in politics is tricky, right? Because one could think of upending and abolishing the the status quo, but it's not so certain that one can merely abolish the symbolic without sort of leaving one the inability to whether it be communicate or you know what would happen to the to the function of language whatsoever right so that that itself is a kind of a a tricky um a tricky question but i do think poetry and, and and the a signifying is interesting because for kristeva the poetic function what she sees in the most sort of avant-garde poetry, Meyer May, and and these other things, is not working through the means of ordinary language in its use of representation. It is sort of pushing representation to the limit at which it not necessarily just breaks down, right? Because one can imagine like a lot of Arto's. Like his translation of um Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky starts to break down into almost like this gutturality of, of nonsense, as though to move past the domain of sense back into kind of the bodily, the bodily matrix of howls and cries and, and grunts. That's an interesting productive aspect, but it doesn't have to just be that way. I mean, I think that you know, for her, this movement in which poetry, poetry that she's looking at gets to the point where the representations founder, they're almost brought to the point of, of laughter of being like laughed at right through the movement of this kind of rhythmic musicality that sort of takes its own representative means to the point of if not nonsense, to the point of like disassembling itself, right? It's this—it's this kind of movement of of negativity whereby yeah. I mean, language dismantles itself in this very act of of production. And I think that for her, it, it gets to this processual. The processual is able to like erupt through the language in the way that that she might say that the drives are able to uh, to erupt through their their sort of repression because to a certain extent for for her the way she understands language and its organizational structure is a defense against the drives there is this interesting idea of language as our own sort of defense against the inescapability of the of the huh. drives as mental as mental stimulus you know because like for freud he likens the drives to mental stimulus whereby an external stimulus we can try to protect ourselves from we can flee from and there's no fleeing directly from the demand of work made on the on the psychic apparatus by the drives there's no there's no way to escape them except through these roundabout detours and Uh,
1: so like a uh what's the fucking word sublimation
0: I way. mean, obviously, sublimation is, is one I mean, that'd be mechanism. one strategy, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and for Freud, at least, and we've talked about this some, um, you know, because for Deleuze and Guattari, they see sublimation as, as a kind of wonky uh, category because Freud's thinking of the sexual drives are the chief drives that are sublimated, right? Mm-hmm. It's It's yeah. sexuality itself that is sublimated into these higher... Forms of thinking or art or these things. Yeah, well, I was thinking poetry
1: or music would be right prime candidates.
0: (laughs) Yeah, poetry, music, and I think that Liz and Guatieri are like no, the drives in their very sexuality suffuse the social right, and they give their their funny joke about yeah, the the social is already invested with desire by, by the sexual. Yeah, I think that that's their pushback against a kind of Hegelianizing of yeah. Of understanding the drives because obviously sublimation sublation in our language they're close i think in the in the, the german they're not but in at least in the philosophical understanding the the ideas behind them are very close right yeah, like right you negate sexuality but you raise it up into this higher sphere yeah um, yeah yeah okay you make, you make it you, you right right you the take higher the base and make it South sublime segment. and i think that for Deleuze and guattari right that's that's a kind of cop-out it's a way of kind of misunderstanding the interaction between sexuality and and sociality and i think that the kristeva is 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 doing something similar where she's thinking of how the drives are erupting into the semiotic is erupting into the symbolic and shaking it up and breaching it and shattering its its presupposed unity Mm -hmm. or it's and it's precisely that and I think she's seeing seeing as as revolutionary, right? Where you know she's seeing it as calling into question not just the the subject, whether it be under capitalism or the dominant nineteenth century bourgeois ideology, which would already be in league with with capitalism, but the way in which we conceive what poetry can do, what language can do how we are implicated in the constitution of meaning, the process of meaning-making. All of that, I think, is is sort of what she's seeing as uh, exemplified by these, these writers. Although she doesn't necessarily think they, like, either, ne- like, succeeded once and for all. Obviously, that's not true, right? But she's seeing in their productions the way in which Productivity itself and not can be sh- revealed in process rather than just thinking of the book or the poem as this constituted product that is to be bought and sold and enjoyed in the privacy of our own home. Right? I think that that's that's the difference, and that's what she kind of thinks of as fetish literature, quote unquote, with the capital L, right, as this fetish that can be bought and sold in in ways that Renders it merely a commodity rather than a. I think for her, I mean, I know she doesn't use this metaphor, but it'd be like more of a Molotov or, or a fucking grenade or something, right? Uh, or a ticking time bomb. She doesn't use those metaphors, but I'm trying to like give her the word revolution in her title some some credence because, you know, she's she is thinking that these these revolutions of poetry in poetry are not merely generic revolutions but coincide with and are evidence of political change too
1: i can see why you were reading freud's drives and their vicissitudes as a good uh companion let's say
0: i was going back to it you know and I, I i'm always impressed by the opening the opening paragraph you know when it's really kind of simple where freud's like look people tend to think that science has to start with these well-developed precise concepts and then build from there as though all sciences start from like an axiomatic and in the mathematical sense right and build up these flawless propositions and he's kind of like no that's not how science is and he's thinking obviously of psychoanalysis as a science but i mean too he's pointing at like the um the revolutions in physics if we're going to use this word right fuck i mean these revolutions in physics at the time these mutations in physics that were going on whether it be obviously in the 18th century you had the discovery of oxygen which rules out phlogiston or whatever and you you've got the superseding of the notions of corpuscle and ether these were necessary mistakes concepts yeah yeah, Uh, that, that 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 fit into the uh I mean, obviously, you can go back to Copernicus and all all of the the mathematical and astronomical calculations to try to make a geocentric universe work. So, I mean, Freud, too, is thinking about psychoanalysis as having to kind of put forward, not necessarily purely trial and error, just throw shit at the wall and stick to it, but acknowledge the fact that psychoanalysis is also kind of groping in the dark and is jettisoning some concepts but also revising re- refining and retuning some and this is why he wants to put forward this much more structurally sound scientific if you will based idea of the drive and its four components the drive for him is is so important because it has to show how psychoanalysis isn't just this like mental exploration or a purely ideal kind of thing that it is it is working at the intersection of the body and the psychic apparatus right it's it's this threshold and even if we can't see the drives and like measure them in a way that physics can measure forces directly we can see the effects of the drives in parapraxies and right, linguistic yeah. slips in hysterical symptoms that show through the body it's got a demand for work on the mind, right? It's that's that's what he calls drawing, that's pressure. For him, it's got a goal or an aim, which is to release tension in the psychic apparatus because he's thinking about these things kind of thermodynamically in a certain yeah, sense, right?
1: Right.
0: It's got an object which is arbitrary. It's not pre-given or presupposed, but the object is that through which the drive is able to release tension. And then for him, it's a source, it's got a source. And, and I think that that's the most ambiguous part of it. Because, you know, if we could ideally turn to physics to measure the drawing of a drive, to measure its pressure, if we could have some kind of psychometer to measure it, uh, we would have to go to biology to see the source of a drive. Because for him, it would obviously be sort of a biological. Origin or underpinning, but what we deal with in the drive is a psychical representative. Right. And so I think that's also the paradox of semiotics or the semiotic is that it's only through the symbolic that we can see the semiotic erupting through, that we can see the drives erupting through. Right. So it's this, you know, in talking about it, we are using language to talk about that which subtends it and that which informs it and erupts through it we only deal with these effects and we can't really like point down to these causes right that's that's why she brings up Husserl and the hile it's very much on that humean level right where we in perception we we are assailed by a kind of a bundle of a flux if you will of a material flux that again in the kantian sense that like our our categories, our schematisms prepare in such a way that we can deal with them as, as humans situated in a world, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That goes to like the, I guess, the defensive aspect of the signifier. As exactly. Well that you kind of talked about a, a bit ago. I think too, to switch gears just slightly, but still sticking with, I guess, drives in their vicissitudes relative to it's an interesting parallel, and you mentioned to me just during the reading of this how there's some shades of leotard, and I think in particular, her discussion of poetry and the way that you described it brought back this notion of like what is it the hold me tight and spit on me sort of
0: oh yeah, you're that's one of your favorite lines, but it's it's one of a lot of people's favorite lines that yeah, this jouissance this enjoyment of if not being exploited at least of expending one's body in these demanding conditions right of yeah uh, yeah
1: i I think something similar like in the enjoyment the jouissance of affirming the meaninglessness of language or the art not that would be perhaps too far but like The arbitrariness of it, I suppose. This is what I kind of revel in to some degree. She says, perhaps, that it's not just this enjoyment or like of destroying the system of meaning, but there is something about poetry, like you said, or I don't know what these ways of exposing, yeah, the arbitrary nature of language. There's something, there's a quanta of jouissance to be like. Mm-hmm. Extracted through that somehow, that reminded me of the body, the destruction of the body itself. Yeah, and taking a jouissance of like extracting a surplus enjoyment out of that process. I don't know. To me, there was something similar, and maybe it's just the way that they're working with drive or something like that. Yeah, what corresponds? That
0: like, what's that Marx quote? They have an antiedipus. suffering is a is also a mode of self satisfaction. One can think of the beginning of the Underground Man, if we take it unironically, right? Let my my liver hurts, let it hurt the more. I do think that right there is there's obviously risks, you know, involved in this kind of revolution in poetic language. As she she will say, there is this risk in. She brings up Arto's institutionalization, right? She brings up, you know, Lotrèmon's. I mean, he died at age 24 after publishing one and a half works although wasn't necessarily as a cause of madness but it there's very little known about him in general you know there's this potential for the semiotic and its eruption the eruption of the drives as we said language is this potential defense mechanism against the the working of the signifier in the drives or whatever you want to call it there is a potential to sort of uproot the or foreclose the thetic position if you will and so the real returns in the symbolic right like in the failures of or in the we wouldn't even call it the failures is almost like the over success of the excess of foreclosing the symbolic in any case yeah I mean so there is on either side there is this way in which she wants to think of obviously there is the narcissistic position of poetry that can become self-satisfied and and merely kind of bolster the dominant ideology of the times or the status quo right and become kind of the the trend the fashion of the day the mode that's obviously something too that she brings up in her ethics to kind of negativize that narcissistic position but i think on the other side you're right there is this potential for poetry to fall into either an illusion or fantasy of pure nature of uncon of i think i feel like she uses this phrase unconscious organicity which can pave the way for psychosis we can think of how much poetry there is in schreber's memoirs how much of this delirium and paranoia and there is in um the sort of dismantling of the world it does come back to i mean i i always think about it and i i think it applies here it does come back to like you can botch your body without organs you can destratify <laughs> it too quickly and so i think that that for her this is why it's, it's a process it's the eruption of the drives isn't necessarily and i was using the metaphor of a molotov or a, a ticking time bomb it's not necessarily a kind of once and for all blow up the the symbolic and we can <laughs> sort of live in the real. I mean, that's yeah. obviously that's obviously a kind of fantasy that something like the Matrix gives body to, even if obviously the Matrix isn't meant to be taken literally, right? So, I think that for her, it, it almost has to be a kind of corrosive, a kind of catalytic converter that like eats away at the uh, at the sort of ossified, you know, structurality and, and ossified signifying layer the sort of dead the dead weight the that which the linguist is necrophiliacly like fetishized and call that into question It has to be this this ongoing dismantling and, and remantling and recreation which is why she, she she turns to something like the kind of corrosive nature of laughter that isn't merely a kind of um that isn't merely the laughter one encounters in the the everyday joke right like in freud's idea right because if if jokes lift that repressive mechanism they have the tendency quite often if not in the main to clamp it back down if not with more force you know i think that this is also part of the um misunderstanding of the carnival or the carnivalesque there is a way in which the carnival, as, for example, sort of uniting or reversing the high and the low, right? The the, beggar, the the town crier, the the town madman becomes pope for a day in the carnival. There is a way in which, unrooted from its local traditions and its and its festivities, it can become merely a way of re reinforcing the dominant hierarchies rather than pointing to their arbitrariness and their their lack of foundation right so i guess that has to be the the kind of one of the kernels of her argument right is the undermining of foundations is a kind of practice rather than some sort of goal to attain it's the journey right that kind of shit, right it's it's the ongoing process that matters not some sort of endpoint, not some sort of telos. Like one might think with Leotard again, with uh, the postmodern condition, where he's, as everybody knows, he starts off with postmodernism as a critique of meta narratives, right? And one of them being this end of history meta narrative that we get in certain forms of Marxism, as though it is a kind of telos rather than a process, rather than this engaged process of. Of negativity and contradiction that's always sort of re remounted and and re-elaborated
1: there's a quote in the movie and the movie the big short and it's something along the lines of history is like poetry and people fucking hate poetry (laughs) which i think is just kind of a funny (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, you you saw the quote that I took directly from this book, the Bataille quote. The meaning of poetry ends in its opposite, in a feeling of hatred for poetry. Right? So
1: does it disturb something in the subject to like encounter the it to sort of its own de like its own illusory properties or something like that? Is it like a threat to the narcissistic ego? The reason I ask is because I was thinking about this in the context of, I mean, this is perhaps making a too large of a leap, but I was thinking maybe there's a similar reaction to this, to poetry that there would be to something like pronouns and for the very same reason
0: in that it, the narcissistic ego. So poetry starts that way. In whatever era, I think that this is her point, right? And probably Bataille's, but I'd have to look at the context of what he's saying since she's kind of quoting him out of context a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, her point being that poetry, you know, emerges as as a kind of expenditure. That's the word she likes to use that she takes from Bataille. It's this, as I've said, the, this eruption of the drives against the established order. She says, quote, To penetrate the era, poetry had to disturb the logic that dominated the social order and to do so through that logic itself by assuming and unraveling the position its syntheses and hence the ideologies it controls. But then she says, what one had to fight were all the possibilities in poetry that had been transgressive but were now encoded and thus categorized within the symbolic order as fetishes. So this is why I think she points to Lotre Amon and Meyer May as exemplary but mm-hmm. also pointing out and knowing at the same time that it's not as though these can be taken as models for all time for the necessary revolutions of the future, if you will, right? Because mm-hmm. um, there's a certain way in which it can be just as academic to theorize Proust or Lotremont or Marme to turn them into relics of, of a literary bygone era that don't disturb anyone. That's where I see her saying something very clearly like Deleuze and Guattari, where it's like, look, man, it's not about finding meaning in these literary works, right? It's not about what it signifies, which I think goes back to your question about signification. It's not about the signification. Chris David might say it's about the signifying praxis, the practice, the process of the semiotic that is eating away at the ossifications of the symbolic. I mean, I think for Deleuze and Guattari it's, you know, obviously what a what a text can do when it's not separated from its power, its force, right? When it's not turned into a reactive force. When it's not turned against itself and then just becomes a a part of the dominant ideology, which is the problem of capitalism that they theorize, right? It's always it's constantly expanding its limits to to allow what once was Anathema or disturbing right, yeah. to the order, it makes another sector. I mean, I it's a banal thing, but you know, you can see Che Guevara shirts, or even like as I said, you can buy on Amazon the 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 complete text of of Marx and Engels. You know, in a time in the fifties and sixties, that would get you blacklisted and make you yeah. lose your job or your or your house or or whatever. I mean, that's just another product, and so you can see something similar in her argument about poetry and maybe in understanding what Bataille is saying right you you start with the with the meaning of poetry which one could take loosely as what chris Dave is saying is this transgressive force but then there's always there's always the adaptive moment right the so
1: re-territorialization you yeah
0: you, you, you can't right exactly you can't stay you can't stay there at that level and, and become again you can't become smug right you can't you can't take up a narcissistic position and think that
1: I mean, this kind of goes to Durkheim too, because of his, not the transgressive, but it's effectively the same thing. It's like the anomic? No, it was more like the sort of limit of the social in terms of behavior. There's a functional constructive aspect of it because it says, okay, this, we have to have something to posit the other that is behaving badly that we don't want, but that strengthens the connections of the in group socially. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it sets the boundaries for behavior. And I forget what the specific fucking term was. The theory is, uh, but yeah, it's kind of similar. Just pointing out the relativity, I suppose, of the limit or Mm -hmm. what was transgressive can be integrated. It's always a process and it's not a destination, like you said. Yeah, it's always in this line is always in negotiation, let's say.
0: Right, or dialogue
1: yeah. or conversation but i want to go back a little bit to poetry and a signification and discuss a little bit because even though her notion of semiotics and guattari's notion of semiotics are are different they both grab on to see something special about music in particular which i think is kind of interesting and i think it's kind of interesting For poetry and music, like they have a very shared sort of historical dimension to them in the way that in the oral tradition of the poet, I'm thinking of something like the Homeric Homer, right? Or fucking Beowulf. That shit was sung by a poet around a campfire and they like played a harp or whatever, right? Like there was (laughs) always an accompaniment, or not always, but there was a certain musicality to it in -hmm. addition to what we consider poetry in like our modern context, which is divorced entirely from music, unless you want to talk about rap. But I mean, even song lyrics tend to rhyme, right? But that's a bit reductive, I suppose.
0: I mean the troubadours too, a lot of the poetry that survived, I think three-fourths of it is accompanied by musical notation. So even that you were mentioning the scald or whatever of the the Beowulf poets, but you know, obviously the the bard, the bardic tradition in terms of music. Yeah. I mean, Kristeva is willing to discuss the semiotic effects of music, dance, gesturality. Basically, she doesn't want to enclose the poetic function into either merely the literary or into just a movement of language right she is thinking beyond that restriction i think that that gives her um i give her some credit for that at the same time she's not a um a theoretician of choreography or or music i mean no one could be expert in all fields but she doesn't deny their more direct Contact with the semiotic chorus, as she calls it, right? This movement of rhythmicity and, and tonality and melody. I mean, she does theorize some of these musical aspects in some of her other works where she's kind of thinking of language acquisition before the mirror stage, right? She's thinking about the sort of musicality of the of the mother's voice for the for the infant. She's thinking of the rhythmicity of of not just intrauterine in the womb, but in those first months whereby the mother is, I mean you can't even really call it the primary object, but it's but is still not yet sort of dissociated the positions of the other, right? It's like when does the The infant become take on that that position of otherness is part of what the the mirror stage is trying to theorize is it i mean it does it become other when the uh umbilical cord is cut or is there more of this ongoing negotiation in those first crucial months this is also what freud's trying to get to when he thinks about you know, the helplessness of the child, our premature biological disposition. We're born too early. You can think about all kinds of animals that out of the womb can already kind of start walking around and have some autonomy. It's not really the case for for humans. Which he, um,
1: I suppose, highlights in the sense that she talks about the mother as the phallus, but the, also the mother as the mediator between, or like the structuring mediation of, I guess, desire itself, huh?
0: Yeah, in those cru- first crucial months, the mother is the phallus in the sense in which the phallus is uh, the, if you will, is the stand-in or the representative of gratification. The mother is that primordial link. Obviously, there are other ways to feed children nowadays, but we can think about our biological prehistory. The mother is the necessary sustenance link for those crucial months again leading up to um the mirror stage one and so the whole process of weaning if you will is is a primordial maternal function of castration one is weaned off the breast that's one of the the primordial separations beyond obviously the the trauma of birth or whatever the Rank talks about or the cutting of the umbilical Core. that's obviously a function of separation but there is this ongoing separation of of the sort of need for gratification of wants specifically nutritional right through the breast so one can think of before we even start discussing the paternal function or the name of the father or you know castration in the sense in which freud and lacan think it that's the sense in which kristeva is talking about the mother as, as the phallus
1: I guess the mother too would be the first other we sort of encounter as well. So that would kind of go to the structuring aspect of the mother in terms of social relations.
0: Right. This is why you used to see this all the time in literary theory. You don't see it as much, but you'd write mother with the M in the parentheses, right? But right. Yeah. That's the, um, that's definitely the way in which that dialectic begins. The still kind of pre object stage of the mother and the child the sort of maternal function as, as she's calling it which is why she brings up the semiotic cora right the semiotic core for her is based off of this notion from plato who likens it to a receptacle to a kind of womb to a kind of maternal encompassing space for things and it's you know for her right this the sense in which we, before sort of entering language in the way that Lacan thinks it, right through castration and yada yada, we are sort of prepared or pre-prepared in our, not just in our gestation, right? There's all kinds of notions of the of speaking to the child in the womb, but you know the there is a whole ecosystem, a whole ecology of where. Otherness begins and ends in the mother-child, mother-infant, I'll say, relationship in and outside the womb in those in those months.
1: What do you think about this? She says that um, what is repressed in the social mechanism, the generating of significance, is maybe. Should back up
0: significance or signifiance? Signifiance,
1: I suppose, is what it should be. But I guess this idea, the signifiance, is repressed by. Capitalism—that's
0: one where Guattari too helps. I think, obviously, you know, for her, signifiance is, and Guattari uses this term too. He talks about signifiance and interpretants in um, the Machine and Unconscious, and he gets these terms from Baudrillard. I think he doesn't transform them in the way that Kristeva does. Kristeva at least tries to give a little bit more of her own spin on what she means by signifiance. But I think for her, it is this unlimited, potentially unlimited, infinite, ongoing processual practice of meaning making and so it goes beyond subjects in any traditional sense but is informed by them and informs them and I think that that's why it's linked to the poetic function so yes to a certain extent I mean it doesn't have to be capitalism I mean this is why I think what three is important for understanding how capitalism tries to un- uniformize standardize universalize signifying capabilities right mm-hmm. it wants to repress, what he might call like polyvocality. It wants to repress, we could say the the threat of unlimited semiosis. I'm trying to speak in a language that kind of works with both of them because to a certain extent, this is why their, their subtitle is capitalism and schizophrenia, right? If capitalism functions off of decoded flows at the same time, it's always provisionally providing these axiomatics that categorize that, synchronize and and standardize these forms such that you know everything can have its place in the um, in the modeling function and i think for Guattari, that has devastating effects on the creative potentialities not just of our speech and language but i mean think of all the ways in which even if capital tries to claim like you know go and buy your products and, and be yourself, the creativity is provided by the market rather than something that could spontaneously erupt. I think that for Kristeva, she's thinking about it on the level of the drives. More so, I think Guattari here obviously like won't use that language and he goes in, into other avenues for creativity, you know, virtual ecology and these other things, right? I think with Kristeva, she's thinking about how it is the... Eruption of the semiotic in the symbolic that has to be kept at bay by the what she's calling here the social mechanism, the dominant ideological status quo can only tolerate so much influx of the drives into the symbolic order and destabilizing it. So, language itself is not just a defense mechanism for the individual, it's also obviously a way of ordering what is allowed. To infiltrate society, which is why you know madness has to be kept at bay. I'm thinking of like we don't have to go to Foucault here, but he has a whole. Obviously, you can look at, the, at his at his work on um the history of madness to think about like the ship of fools, which starts off the the book. It has to be kind of coordinated or set adrift. It's someone else's problem. I'm um, thinking of Twelve Monkeys when you know,
1: yeah, Brad Pitt's character says, "Hey." Yeah, you can't.
0: You're not gonna get a phone call. You're, you know, they're not gonna let you uh, corrupt and contaminate the rest of society with with your with your schizo flows, right? Yeah,
1: like uh, what's the movie with Sam Neill as well, where it's like into the mouth of madness, I think, Mm -hmm. because his uh, agent, literary agent, comes to him and utters something, and then like he's thrown off, right?
0: Yeah. So I and devolves, etc. Right. Right. No, I I just think that that's part of what she's trying to mean, that um, this is why I think her critique of linguistics is also a kind of, you know, a political statement, right? It's that as a science, you're trying to um, sort of fetishize language as a structure and not see, you're not seeing the signifying process or practice. You're not seeing signifiance, it's dynamism at work, those kind of variables If you will, are not conducive to the static mode in which we tend to think of the objects of the science, right?
1: Yeah, throw me off just because of her emphasis as well on like what it basically what it does and not what it means. She spends a lot of time on that idea with the examples from Lenin and Mao as well. Yeah, uh, on practice. I even like pulled these in the text. I can even probably f- find this because I thought it was kind of funny that <laughs> as much shit as Guattari and Deleuze get from people that they're not like Marxists or whatever, like they're literally quoting fucking Lenin.
0: She thinks Mao is a, is better on on these issues of practice than even Lenin or Marx and especially Hegel. She's kind of, this is in 74 right before she actually goes to china and she writes a book on chinese women she has this idea and she herself calls herself out for it this preconceived notion and fantasy of um, of eastern modes of thinking perhaps having some greater understanding of whether it be semiosis or the semiotic or uh, perhaps a more freer more a better acquaintance with language and the subject and yada yada you know because at that time right there especially after post 68 they saw what the i mean post 68 telkel that literary group she was a part of and became editor of in fact you know they had been working with the french communist party and they saw that the french communist party was against the the workers striking at the moment when the university students were protesting they they were kind of in solidarity to a certain extent with with the de gaulle regime they were at least reactionary by the standards in which you know and this is guattari's point where it's like where are the the revolutionaries so i can go and and lead them right this it's this inability to condone striking and i mean literally like striking while it's hot and thinking that theoretically the party needs to dictate the movement rather than adapting to situations on the ground and so they broke with the the french communist party quickly after that i think in 71 so i guess it was a few years but um you know at that time two mao's theories on contradiction on practice these his works was starting to infiltrate french progressive communist thinking and so Mao became sort of the hope, right? Of uh, reinvigorating the left. And obviously that came with its own strange history too, just like the way in which Althusser for a time was seeing in Stalin, obviously the vanguard of what could possibly be done in leftist politics. And that that too had its own setback, right? So it's
1: she mentions how Lenin writes in the margin, practice is higher than theoretical knowledge, which goes back to the Marx oft quoted. Heretofore, philosophers have only theorized about the world. The point is to change it, right?
0: Or interpret of the world. Interpret of yes. the world, right? Right, right.
1: And then Kristeva continues Marxism, Leninism stresses above all the orientation of practice towards externality, objectivity, and the real.
0: And then so the again, yeah, the thesis on Feyerbach quote, right? The it's not about contemplation, but direct sensuous human activity, right? Which is why she turns to Mao, who's kind of like, look, if you don't have a direct experiential practice, if you're not actually got your hands involved in what you're trying to theorize, your your knowledge is good for nothing, right? And um yeah, practice- which goes
1: to that kind of the necrophilia charge
0: right of linguistics of precisely yeah we gotta we gotta codify language in order to have a mastery of it and possess it and i think that her book is and the whole notion of the semiotic and the symbolic interacting in this dialectic that's ongoing right is you can't just theorize language as the symbolic you're going to definitively leave out the dynamic inherent in its processuality you're going to kill it and you're going to kill the subject or reify it into some atomistic subjectivity into some transcendental ego so yeah i mean like her elaboration of these semiotic theories of poetry and poetic function and practice is trying to which is why she has 400 more pages where she tries to get down in the weeds in what Amon and Meyer May her two kind of uh, examples she tries to get her hands dirty in uh, elaborating the practical implications of their of their work. I do think that she's and, and and it goes back to what I was saying about her becoming a psychoanalyst, right? Like there's a way in which you can apply this, and she does here, right? Before becoming a psychoanalyst, five years before, she may have already started her training, but you know she's applying these psychoanalytic theories to adjust and correct course correct and uh modify and critique these theories of language and linguistics that were dominant at the time up to and including Lacan and Derrida she's critiquing them and their positions but i think she became a, an analyst because to a certain extent right you've got to um apply and work with the theory and get your hands dirty in the practice you can't just theorize from the sidelines right and and i think that that's what she took to heart and you know i think that's what she was trying to do too with with her linguistics and her this is why she has a problematic problem with a notion like literature as a kind of this strange ossification of like You know, the classics or something, right? As though they were these dead objects and didn't have a, as though they were, again, either products, commodities, or just these, like, you know, these things that are bequeathed to the educated class, the bourgeois class, to sort of give them culture or something like that. She has a very problematic relation with that kind of category. This is why she elaborates this notion of the text that almost is like divided in a way in which, if you will, it has like three structures, two of which she names. Or well, okay, so the way I see it is kind of like uh, Freud's idea of, of the dreams. We could say, obviously, you've got the manifest content, right? you've got the phenotext, as she calls it. That's kind of like the structural symbolic aspect of language, which we could think about in terms of signification um that's not problematic but then you have the genotext, which is kind of like the underbelly the 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 that bubbles up that's the semiotic drive based materialist aspect of it that informs it that gives it that gives the symbolic itself movement and that inflects it and then erupts through it that's the latent if you will but at the very core and what she calls the text in this dialectical oscillation and interactivity you've got what she calls the text what freud i think calls the dream work right like it's not just about the the two layers of the dream it's actually what the dream work is producing in its condensations and displacements or in her verbiage she looks at obviously metaphor and autonomy are the two in linguistics they're the two that one can show through here but that's not the whole of, of obviously the dream work right there's there's a whole dynamism involved and i think that's what she's trying to call text and what we think of and what i was trying to relate to you is like the analytic position and and lacan's for discourses because you know it's it is trying to show the production of the analysand's speech back to the the Analizan. it's not just taking it as a finished product right but trying to get down to the process the unconscious processes whereby the analysis and speech is produced and i think she's trying to do something here with looking at texts as looking towards their production in a processual way rather than their status or their structural fixity
1: the I'm only thinking, thing i would yeah. remotely think about talking about would be this her just this finalizing on this idea of negativity as like the fourth term and the dialectic and it being a, a positive
0: her assertion that negativity is the fourth term i think is important because i think for her this is to problematize any teleological progression of the what's usually taken as a triad right of thesis antithesis synthesis right which the very basic one one that we we discussed with Holgate, and he probably would agree with this but he might have different language for it the immediacy of the vanishing of being into nothingness and nothingness into being reveals synthetically out of this immediacy becoming and i think for her this spiraling up the dialectic would be you know teleologically too secure if you will and and i think that she wants to say that it's freud who is a corrective to hegel by right yeah yeah by not subsuming the negativity of consciousness or self-consciousness in its sort of uh moving beyond itself by not sort of settling into or not sort of hiding under negativity away towards this goal it is um i mean i i know that she she might see in freud's dialectical correction to hegel like uh through the death drive or or something like this but I do think that for her, just the notion of the drives as undermining, even more so than the unconscious, the stability of the, the kind of classical notion of mind as, as conscious subjects, aesthetic subjects, which is a self-reassuring idea to be no doubt, because it's it's kind of the sovereign subject it's master of wills and desires freud obviously undermines that right that's radical decentering of of the subject and i think for her it's the fact that negativity is not just a kind of movement of the idea right it, it's this is why the drives are corrective to hegel right it's it's a materiality And I think that this is why she, she has to link it back to the maternal Cora It's the, for there to be this, you know, this, this movement into the mirror stage, into castration, as we think about it in the Lacanian sense, introduction to language, we are already kind of pre-cooked maternally in this like semiotic rhythmic. Well, for example, I, you know, obviously she gets the platonic Cora from, I mean, she gets the core from Plato and Plato's Tima, Timaeus, but the reason also too, why I think she's thinking of the Cora is, is this maternal, not just genetically as we were talking about or ontogenetically, but also one can think about the notion of the chorion, which is that gestational membrane that connects and divides the uh fetus from the from the womb right so it is this as i said it's almost this chamber of 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 pre-cooking the the subject in process ontogenetically. it sets the stage and preps the scene the other scene of the drives you pretty much went over this quote word for word from the text not Just
1: now, but a moment ago. Thus, even while maintaining Kantian oppositions, the Hegelian dialectic moves towards a fundamental reorganization of these oppositions, one that will establish an affirmative negativity, a productive dissolution in place of being and nothing. The theology inherent in this reorganization will, however, leave its mark in an implicit teleology, namely the becoming that subordinates indeed erases the moment of rupture.
0: I guess that's why she wants to take the notion of negativity and she'll from, from Hegel. And she also looks at Freud's notion of negation and sort of create a productive dialogue between them, whereby she, what she starts calling rejection, which would take up a whole other episode to go into. (laughs) That's the second part. The second chapter if you will of of this book but rejection i take it to be also foreshadowing what she takes up in i don't know if it's her, no it's not in the next book one of the books and i mentioned it earlier the powers of horror essay on abjection when she starts to like theorize the abject i think too she's 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 already thinking about the abject in this notion of rejection but it too reminds one in the in the in the negation essay about you know Freud talks about what is initially good to me you know in this primordial sense i take into my my body and what is bad i spit back out this out out right this literally it's kind of a rejection what is bad and what kristeva wants to do not just with the abject which i'll leave Aside, that's just this whole other thing, although we could go into it. But with rejection, you know, one could think about how rejection is not just a negation in the simple sense, but it's this, as she says, this affirmative productive negativity. Because, for example, and she finds this in like the child's anality in expelling feces, the child, it's not just a loss, it's not just a negative in a simple sense, but it's the very fact of having been filled up. It's this excess that is the motor itself of the rejection of the uh, uh, the production of the waste, right? So I think that's why she thinks of rejection as this productive moment of distinguishing and separating. And it's in an ongoing kind of negotiating movement with different plateaus if you will she calls them stacies but i think this is the the where the eating away at the symbolic that the semiotic has right there is a rejection of the of the positionality of the symbolic of its you know ossifications and then there's plateaus and it's ongoing it also models itself economically on freud's theory of of drives themselves in their aim to you know, extinguished pressures, right. Which is why she has an interesting and and kind of complicated relationship to what one might call theory or theorists, because to a certain extent, theorists can help society to vent off some of the pressures that are built up in the semiotic interplay through whatever we want to call it, through the poetic revolution or poetic function. And so in that sense, there is a danger too that the theorist could help to reconsolidate and work subversively against the subversion of of poetry, right? In this broad sense that she's talking about, it could be a little release valve for the what she calls she keeps using this word the crucible that poetry is like ebulliently bubbling over into um, you know into the foundations of of the symbolic. So that I think too, she's, she's, she's marking and remarking on her own involvement with the theoretical position, right? The, um, the, you know, as, as being able to, um, as a release valve, being able to deaden and weaken the, uh, the force, the revolutionary force of art. So I think she. She's not, in any straight sense, valorizing theoretical work. Obviously, that's not her only take on theory. That was just one of the more interesting ones that I saw. I mean, she wouldn't be writing this book if she didn't think theory had a place. It's just that she can see. And I, I think that specifically, the we could say bad theory, although that already implies an ideological position that's fraught with its own problems, but one could see like the way in which poetry can become, be at first subversive and then become codified and no longer, um, threatening. One can think of theory too, perhaps also beginning as opening up these possibilities of empowerment and enlightenment, but ending up being co-opted or Again, I, I've used the word ossifying. That's the word I've been liking today. That's my word of the day, but becoming um, themselves these artifacts, these, these dead bodies that end up also becoming like these sacred texts. And I think that, that the Liz and Guattari point out the danger in and the possibility of treating the works of Marx and Engels as like sacred texts or the works of Freud. For psychoanalysts as, as sacred texts and so and we can see this in the history of philosophy too blah 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 right so i think that that's part of the uh that's part of the narcissism too that she's thinking of when she's talking about the ethical import of whether it be theory or uh, specifically theory but she also thinks about the ethics of linguistics in two in um treating these whether it be the you know, treating these artifacts as though they they had some like theological import or salvific import. I think she's very in that sense she's got a very complex relationship, both to to art and to and to theory in general, but I don't think that she thinks they're necessarily counter-revolutionary. I don't think she has an idea where theory is necessarily counter-revolutionary. It's just it, ha- it can have that tendency to try to kill, let's say, like the signifiance in its practice, in its process, as it's developing to, to, to go ahead and try to recuperate art into an artifact, right? Or something like that, and institutionalize it, let's say, right? Turn it into just an object of knowledge or uh you know an object of contemplation rather than recognizing it in its practical singularity and its and its effectiveness turning it into an object knowledge would be the best way to kill an artistic process right that's that's where semiotics as a practice when she's thinking about it that can take itself for its own object is um is a paradox because it's trying to provide models for the other sciences as well as itself, but also trying to take into account how it can't sort of rest on its own laurels and own predictions and and profferings of, of ideas and knowledge. It has to like undermine itself too. And I see this related to like when Laurel well is thinking about non-philosophy and its language and its practice, it can't just think that by taking a philosophical text and reworking it according to certain rules, that if we could do that with all the philosophical texts, that our job would be done. No, those those reworkings themselves would need to be perpetually like sifted back through the the deconstructive machine or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's what Chris Davis is trying to think about too, about theory as a contemplative act. It can have a tendency to cancel out the act and repose and the contemplation.
1: That'll wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate
0: form of singularity, which is Alcance's character, to the whole state of things, the true violence without
1: emotions, this is the
0: typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in uh, block work orange.